This talk was given by Jean Saysen Lewis at the Zen Center of New York City. Saysen is a senior lay student in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation or find out more about the temple's retreats and residency programs, visit our website at zmm.org slash zcnyc. Thanks for listening. Good morning. Um, you know, when I look around the sendo and I see all your fresh and attentive faces, it, um, it makes me very happy. And I want to thank you for choosing to be here this morning uh, when there are so many other things you could be doing on a, on a um, humid August morning. Um, <laughs> but whether it's your first time here or you've been coming for 10 years or longer, um, you know, every one of you contributes something and so much to what we're, we're doing here at the Fire Lotus Temple. And I just want to let you know how much I appreciate uh, the many efforts that all of you made to be here this morning and to be part of our practice today. So, thank you. Um, this morning, I want to speak about an aspect of Buddhist practice that I struggled with for a very long time. And it's about working with strong emotions in a helpful, loving, and life-affirming way, um, while still maintaining the integrity of practice. Uh, so much of my confusion was, uh, it was around holding on, holding, letting go, um, you know, unintentionally, unwittingly, uh, suppressing my emotions in the name of strong practice. Um, so I've called this talk holding, on, holding Our Pain with a Tender Embrace, in a Tender Embrace. Um, so we use the phrase, let it go, a lot in Zen, um, and in other Buddhist practices as well. And when, you receive, uh, when we receive beginner's instruction, uh, we're taught to notice our thoughts and relax and just let them go. And sometimes we can do that, and sometimes it's not so easy. And, but to be free of our attachments, to be liberated, at some point we're going to have to let go of everything. So on the one hand, we're taught that to hold on to anything is to create suffering. And we're told, don't hold back. Engage your practice and your life fully. Be generous, do not be withholding. Don't hold on to anything. Pema Chodron says it this way, if liberation is what we want, we'll need to let go of everything. No holding back something for a rainy day. This is probably the hardest message for any of us to hear. So it seems that holding on and holding back uh, would be the opposite of letting go, and that it's not something that we would want to cultivate in practice. But then we hear things like, hold your practice lightly, 
or we encourage to hold firm to our practice and the bodhisattva path. And sometimes a strong emotion gets a hold on us and we can't seem to let it go whatever way we try to practice it. And if we do succeed, are we really letting it go? Or are we just pushing it away or pushing it down? How can we find the middle way of holding our strong emotions without grasping or aversion? And in practice, what does it mean to hold something without holding on to it? And how do we actually do that? A little while ago, I came across this short piece by Diane Musho Hamilton, who's a teacher, a Zen teacher in the White uh, Plum Sangha, which we're related to, uh, that helped me, actually we're part of it, aren't we? <laughs> um, that helped me to shed some light on, on, the, on this matter. So she writes, one night, after a long day of communication training in New York City, I was sitting in the bathtub when a profound loneliness came over me. I had just spent the day with many open-hearted, communicative people, and yet, just a few hours later, I was feeling alone in a way I had never felt before. For a moment, I panicked. There's no place like New York City to really feel existential loneliness when it comes knocking. Such a strong feeling won't go away by recalling a, comfortable, a comforting memory or by reaching for the phone. It demands to be felt. Felt beyond the boundaries of self-concept, beyond the limits of belonging, beyond any other source of security. It's scary. Primordial loneliness puts us on notice that in many ways, including dying, we are completely on our own. So she talks about experiencing a strong, persistent feeling, loneliness in this case, but it could be any disturbing emotion, anger, fear, sadness, jealousy, a feeling that won't go away with our usual distraction techniques, and we're very good at those, uh, like entertaining ourselves with memories and fantasies or reaching for our electronic devices. At first, she panicked. And when I read this, it, when, when I read this, it really resonated with me. It's like, oh no, now what do I do? And how can I possibly deal with this? If not panic, it could be a feeling of dread or hopelessness, maybe even an immediate shutting it out through numbness, or fill in your own blank here. Regardless of how we show our emotions to the world, whether we're a strong silent type, or a frenzied hysterical type, or whatever, our pattern is. On the inside, a strong emotion can feel totally overwhelming. And to complicate matters, at the same time that we're reacting outwardly, on the inside, 
we can be cutting ourselves off completely from our actual experience. But, as Musho says, it demands to be felt, and it's scary. No wonder we want to push it away. I mean, it really is scary. So, how does she work with it? How did she hold it? She continues writing. With nowhere else to go, I allowed this loneliness in. As I sank deeper into the feeling and the tub, something surprising happened. I felt the warmth of the water surround my skin and saw the steam rising and fading. The tub showed up vivid and white and the walls stood out in their dingy hotel yellow. Soon the pipes, the faucets, the toilet, and the sink were all there. Nothing was out of place, and I couldn't have felt more at home. With nowhere else to go, I allowed this loneliness in. Of course, there is no place else to go. There's nowhere else to go. We're always right here, right now. We know that. But how often do we remind ourselves of this? How much energy do we expend trying so hard to be somewhere else than right here, fighting our own little private war against what is? I allowed this loneliness in. I allowed this anger, this fear, this sadness, this pain in. I allowed it in. How much energy do we expend barricading the door, pushing our emotions away, acting out on them without even experiencing them, when all we have to do is just open the door and let them in? And what else do we let in when we do that? Well, we let in the warmth of the water on our bodies and the patterns of steam rising and falling. We let in the sounds of the traffic and the pungent smells from the curry house next door. Still, it takes a lot of courage to let our strong emotions in. And we don't have to do it alone. So we have our sangha, we have, which is our community. We have our teachers. And we can also learn some skills. We can learn how to practice it. The great Vietnamese Buddhist teacher, Thich Nhat Hanh, shows us that we can use the energy of mindfulness to help us to hold our pain. He writes, Every time you have an energy that needs to be transformed, like jealousy or fear, do something to care for this energy if you do not want this energy to destroy you. Touch the seed of mindfulness, and then all of its energy will be able to establish it in your living room, like a mother tenderly embracing your pain. With that energy of mindfulness, you are doing the true practice of meditation with regard to your pain, your emotions. 
When the mother hears her baby crying, she puts down whatever she has in her hands. She goes to its room. She takes the baby in her arms. The moment the baby is lifted into the mother's arms, the energy of wisdom already begins to penetrate the baby's body. The mother does not know yet what the matter with the baby is. But the fact that she has it in her arms already gives the child some relief. The baby stops crying. Then the mother continues to hold the baby in her arms. She continues to offer it the energy of tenderness. And during this time, the mother practices deep looking. A mother is a very talented person. She only needs two or three minutes to figure out what is the matter with her baby. Maybe its diapers are a bit too tight. Maybe the baby has a touch of fever. Maybe it needs a bottle. Then, when the understanding comes, the mother can transform the situation immediately. It is the same thing with meditation. When you have pain within you, the first thing to do is to bring the energy of mindfulness to embrace the pain. I know that you are there, my little anger, my old friend. Breathe. I am taking care of you now. Like a baby crying out to its mother, our strong emotions demand to be felt. Can we put down whatever else we have in our hands and give it our full attention? Can we recognize exactly what is happening in our body and mind in this moment and the next moment and the one after that? The mother transforms the situation by paying attention and bringing awareness to her baby. The moment the baby is lifted into the mother's arms, the energy of wisdom already begins to penetrate the baby's body. We need to be very precise about this. When we're, when we're examining our strong emotions, for example, when I am mindful of fear, I notice that my body becomes tight and a bit shaky. My left kidney starts to ache and my jaw clenches. It feels like my stomach is dropping out and it's hard for me to think clearly. My toes start to twitch and I know that I want to run away. So this is bringing mindfulness to the emotion, but seeing clearly is just the first step. The second step is to hold our experience with compassion and tenderness, just as a loving mother holds her baby. As the mother holds the baby in her arms, she continues to offer it the energy of tenderness. And during this time, the mother practices deep looking. If she holds the baby too tightly, she will hurt it. Too loosely, and the baby will fall. Both steps are needed to transform the energy of disturbing emotions. Either one without the other doesn't work. We need to see really clearly 
what it is that we're holding. And at the same time, we need to hold it and ourselves with tenderness and compassion and love. Any loving being can be invoked for this purpose. If the image of a loving mother doesn't resonate with you, then any other loving being can be invoked, perhaps another relative, a father, an uncle, uh, or a close supportive friend, or our teachers. We could imagine resting our head in the lap of the Buddha, or we could sense Kuan Yin, the Bodhisattva of compassion, holding us in her tender embrace. A really important point here is that through practice, we transform the disturbing energy. We don't suppress it, and we don't push it away. As a friend um, and Dharma brother once said to me, if we try and run away from our demons, they bite us on the bottom. (laughs) They, They will bite us on the bottom. And in my experience, they don't just give up and go away quietly on their own. We have to practice them. So where does this transforming energy of mindfulness come from? Well, it comes from our daily practice, from our zazen. As we continue to practice and open our hearts, more and more of life becomes available to us. When we hold our difficulties and suffering with clear seeing and tenderness, we can use them to pry open our smallness. What a great opportunity it presents, if we can see it that way. We can't predict or control what life will challenge us to hold. We can only vow to stay open and to not exclude a single thing. In this way, we learn to meet and hold whatever comes our way. Buddhist practice is not about escaping reality. It's about engaging reality with our whole body and mind. When I first came to Zen, I was looking for a way to build a wall between myself and my pain. I didn't realize it at the time and I certainly couldn't articulate it in any way. Um, But I suppose I felt that I had suffered enough and that somehow through practice, I could jump over all the messy bits and go straight to being this serene, imperturbable vision version of myself. (laughs) So, um, as you can imagine, it didn't work. Life just kept right on being messy, and I kept, just kept right on suffering. Um, there's an old Zen story that teaches us that it's okay to feel what we feel and to hold that in ways that are deeply human. This is from The Hidden Lamp by Florence Kaplow and Susan Moon. And the story goes like this. When Satsujo, a great disciple of Hakuin, was old, 
She lost her granddaughter, which grieved her very much. An old man from the neighborhood came and admonished her. Why are you wailing so much? If people hear this, they'll all say, the old lady once studied with Hakuin and was enlightened. So why is she mourning her granddaughter so much? You ought to lighten up a bit. Satsujo glared at her neighbor and scolded him. You bald-headed fool, what do you know? My tears and weeping are better for my granddaughter than incense, flowers, and lamps. The old man left without a word. Well, I remember hearing this story in a talk very early on in my practice, and I was quite puzzled by it because it seemed to contradict everything that I thought I knew about Zen. You know, at the time, I thought that letting go of my attachments meant that at some glorious time in the future, I would no longer have to deal with strong emotions again, and they just would never rise, you know? I see now that that's exactly where the old man was stuck, and it's certainly where I was stuck. And like the old man, I wasted a lot of energy worrying about what other practitioners might think of my progress and trying to project an image of the perfect Zen student. But at the time, I also found the story strangely encouraging and comforting. I too had just lost my daughter. She hadn't died, but I had lost her nonetheless. A virus in her brain had transformed her overnight from a bright, intelligent seven-year-old to one who was intellectually disabled and had severely challenging behaviors. The change was so profound. It was, if, it was as if my daughter had died and another very different child had taken her place. In my daily life, there was no time to grieve the loss of my child as I knew her, or to grieve the loss of potential of what she might have become. I was too busy dealing with the new challenges in front of me, and at the same time, trying to give my younger daughter all the things she needed from her mother. My intentions were good, but I just didn't have the skills to manage any of it. I was exhausted, and I felt like I was failing miserably most of the time. So when I was able to go to Sushin, which was only once or maybe twice a year, all the pain and grief came out. I would spend my time on the cushion, holding my body upright, projecting this image of the perfect Zen student, all the while with tears and snot streaming down my face for the entire Sushin. So, although flowers, incense, and lamps definitely helped, my tears and my weeping were just the medicine I needed for my, to heal myself and eventually my daughters. Over time, I have learned to hold this pain more lightly, but I had to give myself permission to really feel it and experience it first. At first, I could only bear to scratch the surface. Over time, I was able to open more and more to it, 
to reach the parts I so desperately wanted to exclude. I learned that to plumb the depths of my pain and suffering is to heal. And out of this discovery, I realized that compassion for all beings must start by plumbing the depths of our own suffering. It's understandable that we might not want to do this. It's painful. It's scary. But the Buddha made it very clear that we must attend to our own suffering first and to do so in the most loving way that we can. Why? When we become truly intimate with our own suffering, seeing it clearly, holding it in our tender embrace, then we can establish a clear connection to what others are experiencing. Their suffering becomes visible and visceral to us in a way that we could never have imagined before. Once this happens, our whole life becomes an offering. As painful as it can be, if we skip this step, then seeing the suffering of others is likely to be merely conceptual. Through practice, we gradually develop a sense of our own basic goodness. We become kinder to ourselves and to others. When our compassion is grounded in wisdom and our wisdom is softened through compassion, when we find the courage to stay with our own suffering, we develop a deeper understanding of the nature and the causes of suffering. And out of this understanding comes a strong wish, not just for ourselves, but for all beings to be freed from suffering. We already contain everything that life offers from the wondrous to the seemingly unbearable, and everything in between. We contain all the different and apparently contradictory parts of ourselves and others. We contain the mountains and the rivers and the grimy city streets. We are vast and boundless. We contain everything. And try as we may, we can't possibly hold on to any of it. Yet over time and through practice, we can develop our capacity to hold everything we meet in our tender embrace. We can hold it all. Shantideva tells us to hold fast to the jewel of the spirit of awakening. This bodhicitta, the desire to wake up, is the thread that holds all the holding together. The motivation to hold our strong emotions in a tender embrace, rather than be defeated by them, comes from our desire to wake up. And to wake up is to live a life of constant amazement. 
in order to truly hold any of our life's experience with tenderness and compassion, we first need to see it clearly, just as it is, without judgment, without holding on, without pushing it away. Only then can we release it and let it go. But don't be in too much of a hurry to let it go. Make sure you fully, fully experience it first. After all, this is your life. So hold it tenderly. And when you are absolutely certain that there isn't the subtlest trace of grasping or trying to push it away, then let it go. And in fact, it will probably just dissolve all on its own. We don't have to do anything. I know you are there, my little anger, my fear, my pride, my sorrow, my old friend and traveling companion. Breathe. I am taking care of you now. Thanks so much for listening. Please join us on Saturday, September 8th at the Zen Center of New York City for Awakening to Karma, How Karma Manifests as Our Life and Practice, a day-long retreat offered by Ron Hogan Green Sensei. For details or to find out more about ZCNYC programs, visit our website at zmm.org ccnyc.